Amen. Thank you, Tanya. If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. Well, this past week, I had the privilege of catching up on the phone with Bill Keyes. Uh, many of you know Bill and Rosemary. For those that don't, uh, Bill and Rosemary were longtime members here at South. And uh, Bill is from Ireland. Those that know him know that. Uh, it's hard to distinguish that accent from anywhere else. But uh, Bill grew up in Londonderry in Northern Ireland. And uh, when he turned 18, he came to North America. And then he and Rosemary kind of moved around quite a bit for work. But then they settled here in Lansing for 35 years until a couple of years ago they moved to the Grand Rapids area. And as we were catching up, one of the things he said to me really stuck out. He said, I didn't know you could be homesick for two places. And uh, he certainly misses everyone here. He tries to keep in touch with some over the phone. But that really struck me. I didn't know you could be homesick for two places. Do you ever feel that way? You ever feel homesick? Like where you are in time and space is maybe not where you want to be. Maybe not where you long to be. On the one hand, I couldn't really relate. Uh, I grew up in the Detroit area. My dad still lives in the same house that I grew up in, so every holiday I go back there. And when I left home, I came to Lansing and have been here essentially ever since. And so I couldn't really relate to the, the physical homesickness that he was talking about. But I think on a deeper level, as a Christian, every one of us knows what it's like to feel homesick. If you know Christ and you sense that he is not here with us bodily, that things in this world are not exactly as they ought to be, that creates a feeling of homesickness. Because of course, home isn't just a place. It's a sense of belonging, of familiarity and comfort, even of permanence. And certainly we know this life lacks permanence. And so as we look at the world around us as Christians, it's easy to feel like we don't belong here. And there's two temptations that come with that feeling. Uh, on the one hand, when we feel like this, this world isn't home, we try to make it more like home. We try to make this world as comfortable as possible to try and fit in, to make things a little more easier for us. So we accommodate ourselves to the world's pattern. Or on the other hand, uh, we get really down and discouraged, even despondent, because we don't fit in and it's just hopeless. And we feel like we just need to sort of isolate ourselves in our little Christian bubbles and uh, not go out into the scary world. And of course, both of those temptations are, are not what God wants for us. He wants us to remain faithful in the world and yet recognize that this world, as it is, tainted by sin, is not ultimately our home. And so what do we do with that feeling of being homesick? Well, thankfully, God inspired Peter to write a letter to people who felt just like that. So 1 Peter chapter 1, and follow along if you would as I read, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So as we consider this passage this morning, our main idea for those who take notes, though we're strangers in this world, God is bringing us home to glory. Though we're strangers in this world, God is bringing us home to glory. So the first thing we have to come to grips with is that we are strangers in this world. Peter uses the language of exile here. And of course, he's drawing on the Old Testament. When God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he brought them, made a covenant with them, and he gave them a promised land. He gave it to them freely. They didn't have to earn it. Uh, They didn't have to do anything but follow God's lead, and they inherited this great land. And the whole thing was given to them by grace, but with one stipulation. You need to keep my law. You need to obey in response to the grace that you've been shown. Well, of course, because we all have sinful hearts, they didn't do that. And so after generation and generation going by of rejecting God, of disobeying his law, of dishonoring his name, he finally sent them into exile, evicting them from the land that he had given to them. And as they were scattered, many went to Babylon, but they also went other places. Some went to Syria, some went down to Egypt, some went to modern-day Turkey, which is where all the locations Peter mentions are located. And as they went, uh, not all of them had rejected God. Many were still faithful to God, but subject to the same punishment as the rest. And so if you're familiar with the Bible, you know the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Esther, and Nehemiah. These were all faithful people who had to find a way to live faithfully to God as exiles in a foreign land. They're now in the minority. They're now isolated from perhaps family or certainly the institutions that protected them in Israel. And so these people found themselves where their values were foreign, their beliefs were foreign, They were a social and religious minority, and yet God still calls them to holiness, to live the way he wants them to live. Now you hear all of that, and it kind of sounds like our situation, doesn't it? We as Christians, as evangelical Christians, are a social and religious minority here. Our values are foreign. Our beliefs are foreign. And yet we have to find a way to faithfully serve God in the midst of exile. And so as much as we want to think of America as our home or Lansing as our home, when we really take inventory of the landscape, we realize that's not actually the case. If you have a hard time grappling with that, ask yourself, when was the last time I initiated a conversation about Jesus with someone else? I don't say that to guilt anyone here, okay? Evangelism is a hard thing. But the reason we're reticent to engage in evangelism, oftentimes, is because we know that we're the outsiders, right? The rest of the culture is sort of together 
in their apathy or indifference to God or even hostility to God. Those who want to worship him and devote their whole lives to him, we're the strangers and we feel that tension. Or consider the outcome of the last election when we discuss the ballot measure here, Proposal 3. This was a measure aimed at approving the murder of unborn children. And 600,000 more people in our state voted to approve that. And some would blame the campaign, but I think people did a lot of work to get the word out on that. I think what happened is we realized we're strangers here. People don't share our values. As evangelicals, we are not in the majority. And so if it wasn't clear before, hopefully it's clear to us now that we are, in a sense, in exile. And this is exactly where God wants us. Because not only are we in exile, but we are chosen by God for this purpose. Notice he says in the text, we are elect exiles. That means as painful as it can be to be strangers in this world, this is exactly where God wants us to be. If you ever wonder what God's will is, you need to know that God's will doesn't always feel good. Sometimes God's will feels uncomfortable. But that's exactly what he wants for us so that we will grow in sanctification, in dependence on him, in obedience to Jesus Christ. We need to know that any attempt that we might make to bring his kingdom by force into this world is not gonna, it's not gonna success, uh, succeed. It's going to fail. So we need to know that God is going to bring his kingdom into the world in his appointed time and in his appointed way. So it's a comfort that we've been chosen by God as uncomfortable as our situation might be. But what is it that we need to hear? What is it that people who are away from home, strangers in the world, need to hear? Well, they need to hear that they can have hope. And we have hope because Jesus is alive. God has given us this hope by his mercy. It wasn't that we deserved it. It wasn't that we earned it. And we didn't even really ask for it. God has thrust this hope upon us because of his great mercy. It's because of who he is that he's caused us to be born again to this hope. We have this hope not because of anything we had control over. It's purely because God is merciful. Think about the image that Peter uses here. He's caused us to be born again to this hope. Think about the circumstances of your birth. How much control did you really have over things? Did you control the day you were born? Uh, did you control who your parents were? You didn't really control your gender. People will try and resist that, but you don't have any control over that. You don't have any control over the town you were born in or the economic uh, fam uh, family situation you grew up in. We had control over none of that. And in the same way, that's how God's mercy works. We had no control over this, and yet God has lavished his mercy on us giving us this hope in Jesus. So we need to know that our hope is not because of our merits. It's not because we're better than those on the outside of the church. It's not that we're better than the world around us. It's by God's sheer grace. And it is hope that we need. 
Hope is what every human being needs, regardless of whether they're a Christian or not. But especially as a Christian, being a minority in this world, we need to have this hope fixed in our minds. Tim Keller said, human beings are hope-shaped creatures. The way you live now is completely controlled by what you believe about your future. And that's true of us too. When we're absolutely confident of our hope, when we're confident of resurrection glory, we can endure a lot of suffering here and now, can't we? When we get a little fuzzy on what's ahead, or when our hearts are too consumed by what we see in front of us, then we begin to be discouraged, or we begin to manipulate, or we begin to lash out in anger, all because we're uncomfortable by what we see. And so we need to know this hope for certain. But there are different kinds of hope. There's a kind of hope that is unrealistic. It's really more like wishful thinking. This is a kind of hope where you want something to be true, but you don't really have any basis for believing it. There's no grounding in reality. So if I said, I hope the Lions win the Super Bowl this year, uh, that would be an unrealistic hope. Might use the word hope, but it's not based on anything. It's not based in reality. Then there is a false hope. Now, this is the kind of hope that is based on something you believe, something you believe very firmly, but isn't actually true. This happens more frequently than a lot of us would like to admit. We begin to read something or have a conversation. We hear something that's not true, but we believe it, and we stake our hope on it. And then when the outcome happens, we're shattered. We're disappointed. This happens often in Christian circles when we hope for God to do something that he has not promised to do. That's very common. We need to be vigilant against that. It's just as important for Christians to be grounded in the certainties of what God has promised. It's just as important to do that as it is to know what God has not promised. There's a lot of things that people believe and hope for that God hasn't said in his word. And so as Pastor Don talked last week about renewing our commitment to reading the Bible throughout the year, a big reason we need that is because if we don't know the Bible, then we get fuzzy on what God has not promised. And we start to be deceived and think, well, no, maybe he did say this and I just can't remember. That's why we go back to the word over and over again to ground ourselves on what he has said so that we're not deceived into thinking he's promised something he hasn't. And then finally, there's gospel hope. Gospel hope is based on the way things really are. Gospel hope is this category rooted in the reality of God's word, which is the most real thing there is in the world, what God has said. Hope can only really be hope if it's based in reality. And so when Peter wants to communicate to these people feeling disoriented, these people who feel like they're not at home, they're strangers in the world, he wants them to have certain hope. And so he goes back to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is the basis for our hope. We can have hope for the future today 
We can have hope that God is going to fulfill what he has said in Jesus because he's already fulfilled what he said by raising him from the dead. The historical fact of Jesus' resurrection is our anchor. It's our starting point. And so when all the storms of the present come, we're anchored in this reality, knowing that it's got implications for what's to come. That just as certainly as the tomb is empty, he's going to show up in the sky one day and every eye is going to see him. And we can be certain about that. That's not wishful thinking. That's absolute fact. If Jesus had not risen, our faith would be futile and we'd be tossed about. We'd be, we might as well make our home here if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. But because he has, we know there's a greater hope coming. And people need a guaranteed hope, don't they? Wishful thinking only takes you so far. In good times, people will pontificate about all kinds of things about the afterlife. They'll think about a better place and the man upstairs. They'll think about all kinds of ideas. But when you're confronted with the frailty and brevity of life, then you need something guaranteed. We saw this this past week. Uh, for those of you who may have heard the story, Damar Hamlin, a football player for the Buffalo Bills, his heart stopped while they were on the field. And he collapsed and they had to do CPR and they rushed him to the hospital and praise God, he's on the road to recovery, he's doing better. That was a scary moment and people were shaken by that. A lot of people who otherwise wouldn't think about death, wouldn't even really think about needing a guaranteed hope, all of a sudden started thinking, whoa, we got to figure this out. We got to turn somewhere to have hope. Because if a, a really healthy 24-year-old can seemingly drop dead on a football field, what does that mean for me? And so the world around us, as much as they're in the majority against God, they're desperate for a guaranteed hope. And that's what we have. Because Jesus is alive. They might not want to believe that, but that's what they need to believe, to have hope. And so Christianity provides the only hope that humanity really needs. And the resurrection opens up a whole new world of possibilities. Everything in this life is tainted by sin. Even the good things, because ultimately the good things come to an end. But we have a hope that is eternal, never-ending, We'll talk about that in a minute. So how would your life change if you were conscious moment by moment that you were going to live forever? If you were not just putting that off in the back of your mind or not just relegating that to some Sunday school facts you memorized years ago, if that was a conscious thought, I'm going to live forever in perfect happiness, how would that change the way you live? I had a seminary professor who told us that Christians shouldn't have bucket lists. I thought that was interesting. In a sense, bucket lists are an attempt to maximize our pleasure here and now through acquiring various experiences. But his point was, and I don't think we need to be legalistic about bucket lists, but the point was, if your hope is to get every experience you can here and now, do you really believe that you have a bodily resurrection coming in a new earth where 
every joy you've ever experienced is going to be intensified beyond what you can imagine. We'll have the entire earth in God's presence, free from sin, free from sorrow and suffering, to enjoy forever. You know, I think about that. Uh, my mom passed away this past fall, and uh, I enjoy traveling. Uh, my wife and I don't get to travel as much as we'd like to, but uh, when we were in college, we both got to take trips to Europe on the study abroad program at Michigan State. And so I always wanted my parents to be able to go and do something like that. Well, they finally got to go to Italy a couple of years ago, just before COVID. And uh, they went to Italy, and the first night they were in the Airbnb, my mom fell and broke her hip. And that was like the end of the trip for her. And I remember being so devastated by that because I'm like, oh, you know, at that point she was aging and, you know, how many more chances do you get to do something like that? And then when it came around when she passed away this year, I thought, you know what? She's going to rise again. And there's a new earth coming. And the beauty of the Mediterranean pales in comparison to what that perfected world is going to be in glory. You think about that? Like, I would be so sad for somebody who didn't get to experience something so beautiful. Like, she ended up spending the whole time in the Airbnb. But she's going to rise again. She's got a living hope. Do we have that hope? Some people are worried that eternal life is going to be flying around on a cloud playing a harp and singing hymns all day. For those that don't like hymns, I'm sorry. <laughs> but the reality is it's not going to be like that. Because our hope is the hope that Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't rise to a disembodied spirit flying around on a cloud playing a harp. He's eaten breakfast. I never understood this. In Israel, they eat fish for breakfast. He's eaten breakfast at the Sea of Galilee. Thomas put his hand in his side. That's our hope. Our hope is resurrected bodies that don't spoil or fade. Some of you might be feeling the effects of aging this morning. Can you imagine a resurrected body that's never going to break down on you? No more trips to the doctor. No more trips to the pharmacy. We who know Christ will one day live in a world where familiar joys that in this life evaporate with the passing of time will find an even greater intensity and beauty in his presence that we couldn't possibly imagine now. And in that place, we'll be reunited with our loved ones, those that we are truly knit together in soul with because we both knew Christ, our union in Christ being the strongest bond that any two people have. Does that sound like home? Does that sound like a place you long for? If you're homesick this morning, think about that hope. Because God is bringing us home to glory. He talks about our future inheritance in verse 4. See, the thing about people in exile is they don't have any land to call their own. There's no bequeathing anything to the next generation. You're a stranger, an alien. But Peter's telling us, you might be in exile now, but there's an inheritance waiting for you. Something to call your own. And listen to how he describes this inheritance. It is imperishable. That means it's not subject to death. Again, no matter how great the joys of this life can be, they always come to an end. But our inheritance will never come to an end. It is permanent. 
We all have that longing for something permanent, the city that has foundations, like Hebrews says. We have a longing for that, and that's what our inheritance is. It's undefiled. That is, it's not tainted by sin. It's not corrupted. It's not corruptible. So many things we enjoy in this life get corrupted because of sin. Our own sin, the sins of others. But this inheritance is pure, unadulterated joy. And it's unfading. It isn't affected by the passage of time. This is probably the hardest one for us to imagine because everything we've ever experienced is impacted by the passage of time. The milk spoils after a few days. The car breaks down. Our bodies break down. Can you imagine a world unaffected by the passage of time? It's amazing. Try and think about that more, especially when you're feeling down. But for all of this great promise, this glorious inheritance, how do we know that we're going to get there? When we face suffering and we sin, or we lose heart, or we feel like we're losing faith altogether, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, we trust God's protection. We are being guarded by God's power. It's not our power. It wasn't our power to acquire this hope, and it's not within our power to lose it either. God is the one who sustains us. The same power that spoke the universe into existence, that gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not yet exist. The same power that brought Noah through the flood and Abraham and Sarah gave him a child. The power that rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt and brought down the walls of Jericho. That defeated the armies of Midian and elevated a shepherd boy to the throne of Israel. The power that made the virgin conceive and stopped the winds and the waves, that made the lame walk and the blind see, that raised the dead to new life. That is the power that guards us until that day. Do you believe that? Some of you might be out there today thinking, boy, like I was a Christian back in the day, but I've really walked away and God can't forgive me again. Let me tell you something. If you come to him, seeking him with all of your heart. He's going to keep you until that day. You don't need to worry about keeping yourself. You just live one day at a time by faith. Today you're living by faith. Tomorrow live by faith. And trust that as you look day to day, just hanging on by whatever thread of faith you can muster, know that it is God who is keeping you until the end. J.I. Packer said, your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You're not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. I hope that we really know that as a church because there's going to be some harder days ahead, but we can cling to this hope because God is clinging to us. So my prayer for South Church, for our church, is that we will persevere in hope. It's hard feeling like strangers in the world it's hard feeling like no one shares our values, like believing in Jesus is increasingly a weird thing. But we need to know that to be faithful to Christ is what's going to bring about this glorious hope. To live by faith every day, knowing that he who began a good work in us is certain to bring it completion. He's going to bring us home to glory. As the third verse of Amazing Grace reminds us, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we've already come. His grace has brought us safe thus far. 
and grace will lead us home. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess to you the weakness of our faith. As we endure the trials of this life, it is so difficult to be certain that there is a hope coming. Our eyes are so powerful, and they often control our hearts and what we most desire. But Father, I pray that we wouldn't be controlled by our eyes, but be controlled by what we have heard from your word. That we would live by faith, knowing that one day it will be sight. That though our inheritance is right now kept in heaven, concealed from our sight, that one day it's going to be revealed and all the earth will see it together. Father, help us to cling to Jesus this morning. We pray in his name. Amen.